0: Volume 1, Chapter 11, Part 1 of A Popular History of England, From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hope Force one A Popular History of England from the earliest time to the reign of queen victoria by francois pierre guillaume Guizot. chapter eleven part one the hundred years war edward the third thirteen twenty seven to thirteen seventy seven the young king edward the third was but fifteen years of age when he was raised to the throne of his deposed father the Parliament appointed a council of regency, composed of five prelates and six great noblemen, and consigned the young monarch into the keeping of the Earl of Lancaster. No power was formally vested in the dowager queen, but her debts were discharged, and a large pension was granted her, by means of which she was enabled to strengthen her own influence and increase the authority of Mortimer. While England had been engrossed in its internal dissensions and struggles, Scotland, under the firm government of Robert Bruce, had been recovering from the effects of its misfortunes. The thirst for vengeance raged, however, in the heart of all the Scots, and respect for the truce was powerless to restrain them. Hearing that King Edward II had been dethroned, and that a council of regency had been appointed, they crossed the frontier on the third of February, thirteen twenty seven, and began to lay waste the northern counties. Their army gradually increased in numbers. King Robert was ill, but his two faithful friends, James, Earl of Douglas, and Randolph, Earl of Moray, were at the head of his troops. The Scottish army consisted entirely of mounted soldiers whose light, robust steeds steady as themselves bore them with the swiftness of the wind without rest and almost without provender no baggage no tents a bag of oatmeal in front of each horseman under his saddle an iron plate which served for baking his cakes the english farms and villages furnished the rest Rumours of the ravages to which the northern counties had been subjected touched the feelings of the young king, and awakened his martial ardour. In the beginning of July, the English troops, supported by an army corps from Haynault, the members of which had been brought with great difficulty to live at peace with their English allies, arrived at Durham. The exact whereabouts of the Scottish army was unknown but the king pressed forward in pursuit like his enemies he had left the camp baggage behind him after a week of pursuit the scots were still invisible and the english on the verge of starvation were beginning to murmur the king promised the honour of knighthood and a pension of a hundred pounds to whoever should bring tidings of the enemy they had crossed the ware on the fourth day a messenger galloped up on horseback. Sir, said Thomas Rokeby, the Scots are within three leagues of this spot, encamped upon a mountain. I have been their prisoner for a week, but they liberated me that I might come and inform you that they await your arrival. The king immediately marched towards the enemy. They had arrived on the banks of the Ware, and this time the Scots were perceived, encamped on the summit of a hill. They were drawn up in battle array, but they did not stir. Edward dispatched a herald to them, with a proposal that they should cross the river, in order that a combat might take place upon the open plain. I have not come here for the king's pleasure, said Douglas, and I will not leave my post for love of him. If he is not satisfied, let him cross the water and drive us before him. The undertaking was too perilous, and the two armies remained in their respective positions for two days. On the third night the Scots raised their camp, and were soon afterwards perceived to have taken up a still stronger position upon another hill. The king of England broke up his camp likewise and followed them. For eighteen days the two armies had watched each other without result, not a blow being struck. The English troops were sleeping in their tents, when a loud cry was heard amid the silence, "'Douglas! Douglas!' "'Death to the English robbers!' The terrified soldiers rose in confusion and in a half-sleeping condition and groped about in the dark for their weapons. Meanwhile, sounds of strife were heard, and suddenly the ropes supporting the royal tent were cut, and by the side of the couch, whereon the young king was sleeping, Black Douglas, the most valiant knight in Scotland, appeared like a threatening phantom. The chamberlain and chaplain of the young king sprang forward to protect their master. The youth had hidden himself within the folds of the tent. Douglas, however, did not pursue his adventure further. Sounding the horn, he recalled the three hundred men who had followed him. What have you done? asked Randolph when the Scots had regained their entrenchments. We have shed a little blood my lord that is all said douglas we should have crossed over with the whole of our army insisted his friend our provisions are exhausted on the following night the scots disappeared in silence carrying with them a rich booty while king edward incensed and humiliated again marched towards york whither his effianced bride Philippa of Hainault was being conducted by John of Hainault. The marriage was celebrated on St. Paul's Day, 1328. The king was 16 years of age, while the queen was one year younger. Peace had just been concluded with Scotland. The independence of that kingdom had thereby been acknowledged. The crown jewels, which had been seized by Edward I, had been restored. And the little princess, Joan, who was betrothed to David, the young son of Robert Bruce, had been taken to Berwick and given up to the Scots. It seemed as though the deliverer of Scotland had waited for this great triumph before going to his last rest. He died in the following year, the fifty-fifth of his age, leaving wise consuls to, to his countrymen and to his faithful friend, the good Lord James Douglas the task of carrying his heart to palestine in order that his vow to visit the holy land might be fulfilled the evils of a minority threatened scotland at the very moment when england was escaping from that calamity the arrogance of mortimer had increased with his power and the great noblemen were beginning to shave under the yoke which he imposed upon them the earl of lancaster was the first to make an attempt against the favourite, but he had been defeated, notwithstanding that he obtained the temporary support of the king's uncles, the Earl of Kent and the Earl of Norfolk. Mortimer ravaged the possessions of Lancaster like a conqueror. A rumour had been spread abroad that King Edward II was not dead, and the Earl of Kent had perhaps been encouraged in this illusion, which was the cause of his ruin he was accused of high treason and condemned for the strange crime of having endeavoured to replace a dead man upon the throne the execution took place on the nineteenth of may thirteen thirty in spite of the noble birth of the victim and the public indignation reached its climax the young king had hitherto remained silent concerning state matters and had appeared as a docile instrument in the hands of his mother and Mortimer, although he had kept aloof from them since his marriage, not permitting his young wife to frequent a corrupt and licentious court. It was on the 13th of June, 1330, that a son was born to King Edward, who was to achieve a mighty reputation as Prince of Wales. The young king, already a father at eighteen years of age, began to feel the disgrace of his situation, and to experience some remorse for the wrongs which were perpetrated in his name. Slowly and prudently, he communicated his opinions to Lord Montacute, one of his advisers. A parliament was convoked at Nottingham in the month of October, the king being then lodged in the castle with mortimer and his mother on the night of the nineteenth the keys of the fortress had been brought as usual to queen isabel when lord montacute accompanied by several friends crept silently into the vaults of the castle which had been opened to him by the governor the king awaited him with great anxiety at the door of the great tower the conspirators ascended a dark staircase and found themselves at the door of the queen's antechamber. Notwithstanding the lateness of the hour, the voice of Mortimer was heard discussing with some of his adherents. Montacute and his friends broke open the door and killed the two sentinels who endeavored to defend it. Hearing the commotion, the queen ran forward, calling loudly upon her son, who had remained behind the door but whose presence she guessed my dear son she cried spare the gentle mortimer my beloved cousin the favorite was however dragged out and at daybreak he was already on his way under strong escort to the tower of london nottingham rang with sounds of joy the king had ceased the reins of government this he announced to his subjects in dissolving the parliament and convoking a new representative assembly at westminster on the twenty sixth of november thirteen thirty the favourite was cited before his judges the king himself being present at the trial his crimes were notorious and consequently the decision did not long remain doubtful as he had put julie dispenser to death without allowing him time to make any defence mortimer was himself drawn to tyburn and hanged with sir simon beresford one of his accomplices his property however was not confiscated and his family retained the title of earl of march which had been granted by the queen to her favourite isabel was imprisoned in the castle of rising treated with respect by her son who paid a visit to her every year and ministered liberally to all her necessities but she never again left the retreat in which he lived for more than twenty-seven years afterwards. The regent of Scotland, the Earl of Moray, was dead. The valiant Douglas had been slain in an expedition against the Moors of Spain, the first episode in the crusade which he had undertaken in company with the heart of Bruce. Scotland was now governed by the Earl of Mar, a warrior far inferior to the great champions of liberty, the friends and supporters of Robert Bruce, the time had come when England was to be raised out of the disgrace of the last treaty. The pretensions of Edward Baliol, the son of the exiled king, were advanced by several English peers who had been deprived of property pertaining to them in Scotland. Baliol advanced into the northern counties, and a certain number of Scottish malcontents crossed the frontier and rallied round his standard. He then marched into Scotland, but soon confronted two armies superior to his own. A skilful movement, however, placed the invaders in an advantageous position. The Earl of Mar imprudently gave battle in a defile on Dublin Heath, where he and many others were defeated and killed. Baliol had had time to fortify himself within Perth before the arrival of the Earl of Mar, and the Scottish fleet was destroyed by the little squadron brought over by the Pretender. Baliol's forces were increasing day by day. He was crowned at Scone on the 2nd of September, having secretly renewed to King Edward Third the allegiance which his father had rendered to Edward I. But the crown thus acquired in seven weeks was destined to be lost in less than three months. On the night of the 16th of December, the new king was taken by surprise at Annan, in the country of dumfries by a scottish corps under the command of the young earl of moray and sir archibald douglas baliol in a semi-naked condition and mounted upon a bare-backed horse which for want of time he had been unable to properly equip contrived to escape to the english frontier leaving his father henry dead behind him king edward received him so amicably that the scottish people indignant at the support accorded the pretender invaded the northern counties of england on several occasions carrying the ravages to such an extent that king edward determined to enter scotland in the month of may thirteen thirty three he joined baliol who during two months had been besieging the town of Berwick. the garrison was preparing to surrender when on the nineteenth of july Archibald Douglas, now regent of Scotland, appeared inside of the town. The English army was posted on the heights of Halidon Hill, protected by the marshes. The Scots were excited by the peril threatening Berwick. They attacked the enemy in spite of obstacles. Arrows fell thick in their midst during their passage across the marshes, and disorder had already broken out in their ranks when they began their fierce onslaught on the hill the assault was so vigorous that for a moment victory seemed to incline in their favour but the regent fell and with him and beside him his most valiant knights king edward sprang forward in pursuit of the scots who were beginning to fly lord darcy who was in command of the irish peasants who had joined as auxiliaries slaughtered the stragglers scotland had never suffered so lamentable a defeat King David and his wife took refuge in France, and spent several years at Chateau-Garillard. Baliol was reinstalled upon the throne, not, however, without ceding to his powerful ally, the finest counties in the south of Scotland, to the general indignation of the Scottish people. They soon compelled him to take refuge in the territory which he had thus abandoned, and there he maintained his position with great difficulty, although supported from time to time by fresh troops from england a more ambitious project had been formed in the mind of c- the king of england and the war with scotland languished while edward was dreaming of, of conquering france the king of france charles the fourth surnamed the fair had died in thirteen twenty eight and a short time after his death the queen his wife had given birth to a daughter the salic law prohibiting the accession of females to the throne the peers of the kingdom and the state-general had decreed that the crown belonged to the cousin of the deceased king philip of valois grandson of philip the bold by his youngest son charles of valois and the new sovereign had taken undisputed possession of the throne king edward III was scarcely sixteen years of age and, although maintaining from that time forth, in England, that his right was superior to that of Philip of Valois, his mother Isabel, being the daughter of Philip the Fair, he accepted the invitation of the King of France to render fealty and homage to him for the Duchy of Aquitaine, and again performed the same ceremony in 1331, when he had attained his majority and was king, de facto but in thirteen thirty six the young king of england felt that he was securely seated upon his throne and being piqued by the support with which philip of valois openly gave the scotch he publicly declared that the peers of france and the States general had acted as roughs and robbers rather than as judges and that for the future he would not recognize their decisions but would maintain his own just rights thus began that disastrous war which has been called the Hundred Years' War, but which in reality was waged from 1338 until 1453, during the reigns of five kings of France, Philip VI, John the Good, Charles V, Charles VI, and Charles VII, and of as many kings of England, Edward III, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, and Henry the Sixth. It cost the lives of millions of men, brought plague and famine with it, and caused unheard of misery without any result for the two nations other than a feeling of international hatred which has scarcely died out in our own time. The preparations on both sides were gigantic. The English people looked with favor upon the war against France, and, in spite of the Magna Carta, the king was allowed to seize the Cornish tin, and all the wool grown during the year, although they had already granted him all the subsidies and loans which he had demanded. Edward embarked at Orwell on the 15th of July, 1338, and landed four days afterwards at Antwerp. The Count of Flanders was an ally of the King of France, but his town scarcely obeyed him, and as they were then under the influence of a brewer of Ghent, named jacques von Artwelt, who contracted a fer- friendship with king edward he had negotiated with even more illustrious allies the emperor of germany the dukes of brabant and gueldre the counts of Hainault and namur all had received his money but the troops did not arrive and when on the first of july thirteen thirty nine the King of England at length succeeded in crossing the French frontier. The Counts of Namur and Hainal immediately abandoned him, and his other confederates soon did likewise. The King was compelled to return after having, by the advice of Artevelt, assumed the title of King of France, and added to his coat of arms the lilies side by side with the Lions of England. The Parliament, as ardent in the cause of the war as the King himself, voted enormous subsidies and on the twenty-second of june thirteen forty edward again left england to attack the french vessels of war huddled together in the port of sløy queen philippa had accompanied her husband taking with her a great number of ladies in waiting the french and genoese vessels hired by king philip were numerous and very large when they sailed out of port attached together by iron chains and formed in four divisions and advanced to dispute his passage edward uttered a cry of joy ah said he i have long desired to fight with the french so shall i meet some of them to-day by the grace of god and saint george he began to gain the offing his adversaries already imagined that he declined an engagement but he was really desirous of avoiding the ardent rays of the sun and of attacking briskly the first division of the french fleet which he soon made himself master in spite of a vigorous resistance a reinforcement arrived at the same time under the command of lord morley the victors thereupon assailed the three french divisions at the same time the french sailors became alarmed they could not manage their vessels nor disengage them to facilitate their retreat after having fought during several hours the french and genoese sprang into the water in order to escape by swimming many of them were drowned and the defeat was so decisive that nobody was bold enough to communicate the news to king philip his court jester presented himself before the french monarch the english are cowards he said why so inquired the king because they had not the courage to spring into the sea at sluys as did the french and normans the king guessed the sad truth. Edward had landed on French soil, surrounded by the allies whom his victory had attracted toward him. He laid siège to Saint-Omer and Tournai, sending thence a challenge to Philip of Valois, proposing to arrange their quarrel by a singular contest. He suggested that the fate of the two kingdoms should be entrusted to a hundred combatants on each side, or that a day should be fixed on which a pitched battle should be fought. Philip answered with disdain, and, as in the preceding year, he left his enemy free to exhaust his strength and resources on insignificant places, without ever according him the opportunity of a general engagement. The coffers of the king of England soon became empty, and his allies re- refused to fight he was compelled to consent to the armistice which pope benedict the twelfth advised and he returned to his kingdom infuriated by the ill success of a campaign which had begun under brilliant auspices he unexpectedly appeared in london cast three judges into prison deposed the chancellor and the treasurer who had been the chancellor and the treasurer who had not been able, he said, to supply him with the subsidies necessary to his requirements, and immediately engaged in a contention with the Archbishop of Canterbury, President of the Council. The Archbishop exonerated himself before the Parliament, which, according to its wise custom, refused to subsidize until the King had promised to reform some existing abuses and to give new guarantees against others in the future meanwhile king david bruce had returned to scotland he was eighteen years of age he was handsome well-shaped and skilled in all athletic exercises the joy of his subjects therefore was great at his arrival Balliol had been driven back into england and notwithstanding several attempts of the young scottish king upon the northern counties edward concluded an armistice with him in thirteen forty two at the same time entrusting him with the task of defending the english frontier so much was he absorbed in the war with france and in thoughts of revenge for his past checks a new opening had presented itself to him upon the french territory john the third duke of brittany had died without issue in thirteen forty one and his brother john de montfort had uh, immediately seized the treasury as well as several important towns but joan of Penthièvre, otherwise joan the lame wife of charles count of blois claimed the duchy as the daughter of guy de montfort a younger brother of the deceased duke the count of blois was the nephew of philip of valois and he had invoked the aid of his uncle Montfort had been summoned to Paris to render an account of his claims. After having appeared before the king, he had fled secretly, and his first care was to repair to London, there to do homage to the king of England in respect to Brittany. Edward had promised to support him, but already a French army had marched into Brittany. John de Montfort had been captured at Nantes, and his wife, Joan of Flanders, had with difficulty contrived to escape with her son to the castle of Hannibon, where she was besieged by the duke of normandy the countess had indeed the heart of a man and a lion says frazar and she valiantly encouraged her partisans while waiting the succor which she had demanded from england the wind was unfavourable the english vessels did not arrive and treachery began to do its work in the town when joan leaning on her casement perceived sails in the horizon behold there behold there she cried the succour which i have so long desired the rising tide brought to her Gautier de manny a valiant knight of Anjou, who had become a faithful servant to the king of england and one of the most illustrious among his warriors he was accompanied by a goodly number of knights and men-at-arms and soon caused the siege to be raised, but the war continued in Lower Brittany with singular inconsistency. The King of France, who owed his elevation to the throne of to the Salic law, was maintaining in Brittany the cause of female succession while Edward was defending the rights of the male sex, which he had refused to recognize in the case of Philip of Valois. An armistice enabled the Countess de Montfort to cross over to England. To obtain reinforcements. When she returned to Brittany, she was accompanied by Robert of Artois, brother in law of King Philip and his mortal enemy. The town of Vannes was captured and recaptured. Robert of Artois, wounded, succeeded, although not without great difficulty, in escaping to England. There to die at the very moment when Edward was setting sail with the resolution of directing the war in Brittany in person. He landed in the month of October 1343 at Hanbon, with 12,000 men, and immediately laid siege to Vannes, Rennes, and Nantes, with no other result than the devastation of the country, already overrun by so many enemies, and the retreat of Charles of Blois, whose forces had been greatly reduced the arrival of the duke of normandy the eldest son of king philip soon enabled the french troops to act once more upon the aggressive by besieging edward encamped before van the two armies were suffering severely from the inclemency of the weather the duke of normandy dreaded the reinforcements which were expected by the english edward foresaw that his provisions would shortly be exhausted when the legates of the pope arrived and by dint of their exertions a truce of three years was arranged the siège of Vannes was then raised notwithstanding the truce the war still raged in brittany king philip of valois aroused a widespread feeling of indignation by arresting at a tournament several breton noblemen oliver de Clizot, among others, and by causing them to be beheaded without trial as guilty of relations with the English. The head of Clisson was sent to Nantes, but the king had created an implacable foe in the person of Joan of Belville, the widow of Clisson, who immediately armed all her vassals and soon vied with Joan de Montfort, herself in courage and intrepidity. The countess had recently had the satisfaction of seeing her husband, who had escaped from prison, where he had been incarcerated for six years. He brought with him from England a small body of troops, which he landed at Henbon in the middle of September 1345, but his health was impaired, and he died on the 26th of the same month, naming King Edward guardian of his son. Hostilities recommenced openly. During the truce the two kings had made preparations for a desperate struggle. Among the means which King Philip had devised for the purpose of filling his coffers was the monopoly of salt. It is indeed by the Salic law that Philip of Valois reigns, said Edward. The king of England is but a wool merchant, was the reply at the court of France. The parliament had granted fresh subsidies recommending merrily to the king that he should put an end to the war promptly, either by battle or by treaty. The Earl of Derby was already in Gwenn, retaking one by one all the places which had been captured by the enemy. When King Edward landed in Flanders on the 26th of June, 1345, in order to obtain an interview with the deputies of the great town of Flanders, the citizens, under the command of Jacques von Artwald, had by degrees deprived the ruler of his power, and King Edward had conceived the hope of substituting his son, the Prince of Wales, for Count Louis of Flanders, who refused to renounce his alliance with the King of France. But when he unfolded his plans before the dep- deputies of the cities, and also ardently supported by Artwald... The Flemings eyed each other and asked that they might be allowed to consult their fellow-citizens. "'Yes,' said the King of England, "'by all means,' and he waited at Slöy, while Artvelt proceeded to Brygg and to Ypres, there to plead the cause of his patron and ally. He placed too much reliance, however, upon his good city of Gjant. There the disaffection on his return was general.' They began to murmur, and bot troatet on un chaperon, says the chronicle, saying, Here is a man who is too much the master, and who would compel the county of Flanders to do his behest, which cannot be tolerated. As Jacques von Artwelt rode through the streets, he soon perceived that there was some change in the feeling towards him, and returning quickly to his residence, he caused the doors thereof to be closed this precaution was not taken too soon a furious crowd already surrounded the house demanding the public treasure of flanders who had been sent they said to england by Artwelt. he therefore replied very meekly verily gentlemen as to the treasures of flanders i have not taken one single penny no no they cried we know the truth that you have emptied the public coffers and sent the contents to england secretly for which act you must suffer death. When Artwell heard these words, he clasped his hands and burst into tears, saying at the same time, Gentlemen, such as I am, so have you made me, and you formerly swore that you would defend and protect me. Do you not know how trade languished in this country? I restored it to you, and then I governed you so peacefully that you have had everything at will, wheat, wool, and every species of commodity with which you have been clothed and become fat. But the people cried out, Come down, and do not preach to us from so great a height. Artwald was at a window. Thereupon Artvelt closed the shutter of the window, and determined to go out at the rear, and take refuge in a shirt which had joined his residence. But already the doors had been burst open, admitting more than four hundred persons, all eager to capture him. Finally he was captured among them, and slain on the spot without mercy. Thus ended the career of Artwelt, who in his time was a ruler in Flanders. To the poorer classes he owed his princely elevation, and at the hands of the malignant populace he came to his end. When the news of the death of Artwelt reached King Edward at Sluys he was irritated and despondent all his schemes were frustrated through the loss of his faithful ally and he therefore set sail for england vowing to be avenged on the flemings the latter greatly feared his resentment the wool which was necessary in their manufactures was imported almost exclusively from england they dispatched an embassy to london for the purpose of exonerating themselves and in order to hint at the possibility of a marriage between the daughter of King Edward and the young Damoisois, the, the heir of Flanders, thus would the county of Flanders always remain to one of your children. These representations, together with others, softened greatly the resentment of King Edward, who finally declared himself well-pleased with the Flemings, as were the Flemings with him, and thus by degrees was the death of jacques von Artwelt, forgotten on both sides. Meanwhile, the preparations for the passage to France were completed. The army was numerous and spirited. The project openly announced was to pass into Gascony, there to sustain the Earl of Derby, who was hemmed in by the Duke of Normandy. But Godfrey d'Arcourt, a French baron in exile in England, urged Edward to attack Normandy, a rich and undefended country. The king resolved to adopt it course proposed and on the twelfth of july thirteen forty six he disembarked at la Oge. immediately on landing his foot slipped and he fell come hither into our ship cher sir said the english knights for behold a little omen for you to which the king replied pointedly and without hesitation why so it is a very good sign for the land evidently wishes for me at which all the barons were greatly rejoiced. The soil of Normandy was unwise to wish for King Edward, for he pillaged and burnt down everything before him, Barfleur, Carantin, and saint lou had already succumbed when he appeared before Caen. The burghers had mustered all their forces, and the Count de, the constable of France, with the Count de Tancarville, was there supported by gallant knights but as soon as the burghers beheld the english who were approaching in three lines close and compact and saw their banners and pennants flying and streaming in the wind and heard the cries of archers whom they were not accustomed to see or hear they were so alarmed and discomfited that nothing in the world could have hindered their taking to the flight accordingly they dispersed towards their town in disorder without consulting the constable of france in the matter when the knights found that they were no longer supported by the burghers they surrendered to sir thomas holland and the king of england commanded that no harm should be done in the city of caen where the english remained during three days and therein kept such magnificent booty marvelous to think of which they immediately dispatched to england while the king was riding towards paris taking louvieres Vernon and Vernay, they all, they arrived at Poissy. The quartermasters of the English army even advanced as far as Saint Germain, Montjoie, Saint Cloud, Boulogne, and Reine, whereat the inhabitants of Paris were grievously disquieted. End of Chapter Eleven, Part One.